Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Wanunu. We have another great interview for you today. I'm really excited about our guest, Ben Smith. He's an award-winning journalist, media entrepreneur. Uh, you might know him uh, from his coverage of New York City politics back in the day. He then went on to Politico, forming one of the most influential blogs there when blogging was hot uh, about 15, 16 years ago. He then went on to become the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, a New York Times media columnist after that, and now the co-founder of the media company Semaphore. Ben has a new book out called Traffic. It's all about the rise of internet news over the last 20 years. Drudge Report, Gawker, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, the backstory of the websites and the characters who developed them. Really fascinating behind-the-scenes stories of Steve Bannon, Ariana Huffington, how the media and its rise impacted politics, how new media, digital media, and legacy media have been competing, and who's winning today, the role social media played in everything. Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, Twitter, Facebook, how it effectively broke the media, broke politics, again, where things stand today. Ben and I go back to covering politics in Washington in the mid-2000s, and we talk about how things have evolved over the last few years and where things might go next. We began the conversation as we taped it just after the White House Correspondents Weekend, where he had spent a lot of time with media executives, uh, especially in the fallout in recent weeks of Vice, BuzzFeed, uh, a number of the media darlings of the past few years announcing that they were either shutting down their doors or announcing major layoffs. Before we start here, a reminder that we just launched Mo News Premium. It gives you early access to interviews like this uh, ahead of everybody else, extra content on a private podcast page, as well as a private Instagram account. It's a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News, independent journalism, help us continue to keep doing what we're doing and grow what we're doing. You can check that out right now at mo.news slash premium. You can get access for as little as $7 a month or $70 a year. That's actually two free months if you join the annual package. There's also a lifetime subscription option. You can check that one out as well. Again, over at mo.news slash premium. More content and knowing that you're supporting what we're doing here at Mo News. With that, here's today's conversation. All right, I'm very excited to be welcoming Ben Smith to the Mo News podcast. We, I think, Ben, we first interacted... When you were doing something novel back in, was it 06, 07, blogging for this uh, new website called Politico? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's fun to be here. And um, we, yeah, we've both been blogging a long time in our ways. We, we were both navigating that early internet era. Uh, and that is the subject of, of your new book, Traffic. I should tell everyone. Ben would then move on from Politico and become editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. Uh, BuzzFeed, the subject of uh, he goes, he explores in depth in this book, then a New York Times media columnist, and now co-founder of the media site Semaphore. Ben, I want to begin with what you did this weekend. Uh, you were at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which is now a weekend full of parties, a gathering of media executives, Washington journalists. I want to start the conversation there. Effectively, you were with the brain trust of media leaders this weekend. What is the state of the media right now? You know, I mean, I, it was so interesting to be as somebody who like, well, it's sort of the opposite trajectory from you. Like I came up on the internet while you were working at CBS. And it sure was interesting to be at the kind of big, lavish, expensive CBS party. By the way, I should note the CBS parties have gotten much better since I left CBS three years ago. Yes. I mean, partly just because you're not there. <laughs> and the new Paramount 
Paramount Godfathers, yes. But, you know, talking, sort of the conversation there was about the collapse of Vice News, the collapse of BuzzFeed News, the sort of corporate overlords at Fox, at CNN, kind of reining in their more extravagant talent in the form of Don Lemon and uh, and Tucker Carlson. So they're, they're actually, I mean, I think it's not like legacy media is out of the woods and everybody's going to be fine. But I do think these legacy brands were just stronger than I think people like me on the internet expected. They were more resilient. Streaming is starting to look more like television, I think, than people expected. And so I think after this sort of crazy and really interesting decade of disruption and change, the the sort of balance of power is more with the New York Times and CBS than I think anybody would have predicted. It's fascinating because... You know, in your book, you document the sort of the, the rise of uh, Internet media, the Huffington Post, the peak of Drudge Report influence, uh, the rise of Gawker and BuzzFeed, etc. And it seemed like all the momentum was there, you know, in our various meetings through the years, especially when I was at CBS, a legacy brand. And I was there trying to help figure out digital for them. And you were at BuzzFeed. And all we wanted to do was emulate what you guys were doing. Uh, NBC was investing in you and and all the legacy media companies. You talk in the book about Disney trying to acquire uh, BuzzFeed. What happened? So, I mean, I think, you know, we made a lot of stupid mistakes, right? Like, I don't want to sort of say it was, this was such a sort of a, but but I think when you look across the these companies, BuzzFeed, Vice, you know, Gawker, the big thing that happened was that BuzzFeed, I think in particular, had made a bet on social media and that, we would be distributing our content through Facebook, through Instagram, through Twitter, through Pinterest. And that in some sense, like those would be like the, like what cable is to CNN and ESPN. We, we would be the, you know, the MTV of these new platforms. But I think what happened was that for a number of reasons, some of them sort of big forces at work, some of them the ideology and decisions of the executives at Facebook in particular, some of them politics and culture and people getting sick of Facebook. The world just didn't play out that way. There wasn't a place for to build a media company on Facebook, you know, or, or on Twitter. You know, I think there was space for individual creators like 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 one of us to um, to reach an audience directly. And the platforms liked that and they encouraged that. What they did not like was the notion that there would be this middleman called like a newsroom mm. that was living in there, in, inside their ecosystem. They liked the idea of, of basically getting content for free from individuals. And so the big, sort of the biggest kind of strategic bet that these companies made just didn't pan out. Like there was no there there. And then you talk about sort of the legacy companies being more resilient. You know, there was a time not so long ago, I remember, uh, it was probably it was before you got there. The Times, you know, put together a, a whole manifesto about how they had messed up the internet and what it needed to be fixed about it. That that manifesto leaked to BuzzFeed News. <laughs> it was a great scoop for us, and like felt like the you know salt in their wound. <laughs> and you know, there were legitimate questions about whether these media legacy media companies would survive, and that you know the mm-hmm. digital kids uh, were going to be taking over. Uh, yes. that, you know, our grandparents couldn't figure out the, the latest iteration of the internet. They hadn't quite figured out how to monetize, right? They, the transition from print to the internet, they hadn't quite figured out. The music industry dealt with its own situation and the news media industry dealt with its own problems. Uh, is it just that legacy just had more money to be able to withstand those mistakes or have they effectively 
learn the lessons of, of the digital startups? And is there an actual strategy here that's allowing them to succeed? You know, I think it's, it's a number of those things. It is also just that what people wanted changed. There was a period, I think that, you know, you come out of the Iraq war, the financial crisis, and a lot of people just were really felt really alienated from these big legacy brands and didn't like them. And we're looking for a new outsider voice that was going to challenge that this kind of stuffy, old fashioned, slow, um, and some often misleading mainstream media. And, and it was, I think, for me, at least as a consumer, and I think for a lot of people, really fun and interesting and empowering to say, oh, wow, I can just read anything from anywhere in the world. I can hear all the smart voices of these random individuals chiming in. I think as the 2010s wore on, that turned really toxic. Like that space became dominated by the loudest voices. Other forms of media, particularly cable news, sort of picked up on and amplified and fed back into the most divisive elements of social media. And come 2016, you know, I think a lot of consumers were saying, ugh, like this isn't a fun place to be. I think Facebook in particular started saying like, gosh, this stuff is really toxic for us. We're also getting criticized from the left and from the right. Like, how did we wind up in this business? It's a nightmare. Um, and so I think actually, I think it's, it's, you know, it's one thing to think about kind of the corporate strategy. But I think like, people didn't like it and didn't like the way they were getting their news. And started looking for other things. And I think that doesn't just mean like everybody's going back to watching the CBS Evening News. I think one of the main things they were looking for were individuals they felt they could trust and who would give them something sane and direct, um, but also informed and authoritative, which, you know, I think is what you're doing and is basically what we're trying to do at Semaphore with newsletters coming from great reporters who really know their beats, who are telling it to you straight. Another thing they liked was like, oh, you know what? Like the New York Times... CBS, like some of these old brands, just I think were more enduring, were more trusted than I had certainly had realized. It strikes me as we speak um, today, as we record this interview, Ben, there's a new AP poll out of Americans, and nearly three quarters of US adults say the news media is increasing political polarization in the country. Just under half of Americans now say they have little or no trust in the media's ability to report the news fairly. But I was struck by that first figure that three quarters of Americans believe it's the news media that is increasing polarization in this country. And it gets to the larger question, and I think you get to it a bit in the book, which is, does the media of today merely reflect our politics or did the media change our politics? I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's, kind of, I think media, you know, media is an institution inside society and is totally subject to everything that's happening around it and changes with it. Um, I do think social media certainly helped feed this decade of very intense polarization and benefited in some ways from it. And there were technical decisions made, particularly at Facebook in the name of keeping people stuck to Facebook and engaging with Facebook. And this is a big part of what I wrote about in traffic. You know, there were these very specific decisions that we saw at Buzzfeed where, you know, like jokes that could be interpreted as racially divisive. In particular, there's a moment when the CEO of Buzzfeed, Jonah Pretty, wrote to Facebook and said, Hey, like we've noticed that the only stuff that is traveling around Facebook now is stuff that causes racial controversy inadvertently. And like, we're not trying to do it. When was this? But there were there, there had been a post that was like, it was one of those dumb posts about, not, you know, stupid jokes about things white people like, you know, which is like, you know, things like making dumb jokes with the waiter, like, you know, totally harmless stuff that essentially is an in-joke 
told among friends that if projected widely to everybody on the internet, a lot of people would get very offended and feel like, what the hell is this? It's sort of an attack on me. They will then comment, I hate this. This is stupid and racist. And Facebook will interpret that as like, wow, that's meaningful social interaction. We love that. Let's show it to everybody. More comments, so that, more or, comments, yeah. Or like I, I post to like a offensive meme about Donald Trump one or the other, and you reply, kill yourself. And Facebook is then like, wow, amazing. What meaningful engagement. Let's show more people this and provide more meaningful interactions. And it was just a terrible mistake, which they backed off pretty quickly, but really did help just like their basic kind of engagement strategy was pouring gasoline on that particular fire of kind of political societal polarization. Yeah, I mean, they purposefully, their algorithms would uh, help promote content that made people angry, right? Yeah, and by the way, that's also human nature, right? Like they, I, they, I don't think that's what they were trying to do. I think they were trying to, to some degree, give people what they wanted and they were, but what they wound up doing was sort of tapping into the worst in everybody. It's not like those tendencies aren't there in all of us, right? But it was sort of a system that was built to, you know, to sort of exploit the worst in people. I want to get to Facebook in a second, and we can explore a bit of that. But let's back up here to the beginning of your book. You set the table here in the early 2000s. You take us to the beginning of, I guess we're calling it now the mid-aughts, and uh, where the internet was, where in particular the news media was, as it was trying to figure out the internet. And I, I remember this, I was at Fox News during those years, 04, 05, 06. And I remember, you know, the internet, going to newspaper websites was still not a pleasant experience. I remember Sunday mornings, I was a researcher for Chris Wallace had come in at four in the morning before the show. And I'd wait still in 2005 for the print copies of Time Magazine and Newsweek, because the websites weren't updated, uh, and didn't have the latest information. And you're describing the sort of environment of Ariana Huffington uh, and Nick Denton, Jonah Peretti, uh, Matt Drudge, uh, these various personalities. Take us back to the internet, I guess it's almost 20 years ago now, and, and where that was and what some of these people were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost sort of hard to get your head back there. But you basically had this arrogant and yet at the same time, obviously out of touch, kind of big media conglomerates like the New York Times Company and Condé Nast and, you know, all these big television stations that, you know, really were ludicrously out of touch with the internet. I mean, I was a young political reporter in New York. And one of the things that I could do was the mayor would say something and I would post it on the internet. And that would be the only way that you could find out what the mayor said for 12 hours until the New York Times put its edition online at midnight. And so there were these, if, if you were a person on the internet who was trying to talk to other people on the internet, of whom there were quite a few, you know, there were just these huge opportunities. Like, why is the media not just doing the obvious thing to getting into this medium? And and we kind of felt ourselves to be like kind of outsiders in a positive way. And I think Gawker was one of the early blogs, BuzzFeed. And they were, particularly the Gawker team, were, you know, young women, mostly kind of brilliant writers who were totally outside these big media institutions and making fun of them. They were sneaking into the Condé Nast cafeteria and sort of like poking, you know, it was poking fun at it in a way that like they really felt themselves accurately to be outsiders, to have no power, to be the sort of like kids in the back of the class. And this was, you know, and this kind of, in you know, this world grew and grew and, and, you know, and I think one of the things that was very, even when you were inside, it was sort of hard to realize when you like, Oh, wait a second, we're not powerless outsiders anymore. We have a certain amount of power and these, you know, huge institutions that we've been poking fun at meanwhile are in huge trouble and falling apart. And the, it's a little more even that competition. And, 
Yeah. And so that was, I mean, that was sort of the, I think the story of the aughts was of these new companies, Gawker, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, and other advice, sort of starting to feel like they were really the rivals, at least, you know, of, of the old media. And at times they were their rivals for how much reach and influence they had, particularly as Facebook took off. Well, it's fascinating because we also saw the rise of blog culture. Um, you know, you, you, you were blogging, especially over at Politico. I mean, I remember that was one of the first places, um, 07 or 08, where I could refresh the internet throughout the day and actually see development. Um, the live internet, (laughs) this whole, like you look back on it now and you're kind of like, it took a while to figure out what you could actually do with this living, breathing thing. And and there was a moment when kind of to blog meant like just to kind of rant about your opinion in an unedited way at any length. And then companies like Politico, The Verge were like, oh, like we could use these tools for more traditional journalism, basically, and started to and were able to make huge, you know, make build really huge businesses that way. It, It almost parallels social media in a way. I mean, it's still early social media, but, you know, Twitter begins the way Facebook begins, et cetera, with my thoughts on the day or what I had for lunch, et cetera. And then over time became, you know, where the real conversation was happening, where news was being shared, et cetera. You focus in the book, you know, Ben, there's a lot of characters you could have chosen here, but you focus a lot on, on Nick Denton, who's the founder of Gawker, and Jonah uh, Preddy, uh, co-founder of, of Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, whom you worked with very closely. Uh, tell me about choosing those two characters in particular and, and what story you think they tell uh, about the last few years. I mean, I think when you go back to that this sort of early, it's funny, it was all in downtown Manhattan. It's actually basically where I'm sitting right now, Chinatown. Um, good, you get cheap real estate for your startups then and now. Um, and they were two people who particularly were really thinking about the future, sort of saw what massive changes the internet would bring and weren't really necessarily exactly business guys. They were interested in culture and politics and how the internet would change things. And I think I chose to write about them probably because they were really bitter personal rivals, but also had really different views and predictions and dreams about what would happen. And, And Jonah was this very essentially optimistic character who had come up doing kind of politically progressive stunts, you know, pranking Nike with a shoe that said sweatshop on the side that kind of was one of the first pieces of viral media, things like that. And he had this idea that he really saw social media coming before most other people in publishing and started to build this website BuzzFeed to catch it and to experiment with what people would share and had this, I think, idea that basically what people would share would be positive that it would be things that made them look good. Like I just gave to this fundraiser for earthquake victims, or it would be cute animal pictures that would help you connect, or it'd be informative news stories. So you could show that you're an informed citizen helping other people. And it was like this basically positive view of the internet. I remember us thinking like, well, really negative, toxic politics aren't going to work on social media because who would want to look like a screaming toxic lunatic? Turned out many people. (laughs) Denton, on the other hand, had this totally different view of the internet, which was that it would cut through the hypocrisies of old media, that it would show people, you know what, if you want to look at pornography, you can just look at pornography on the internet. You don't need, and, and, and even in maybe in a more public space, you would pretend that you were a better person, but in the internet, the opportunity of internet publishing is just to give people what they really want to print the obnoxious things journalists say to each other in bars, but would never really print just to print all that stuff. And, you know, and, and in a way, some of it came out of this very lively, fun tradition of often quite mean British gossip. He's British, but others, other of it was sort of a philosophy of what the internet could do. 
just to sort of tear the face off the, you know, the old media hypocrisy. And so came with much more of an edge. At its worst, I think, really was about, you know, Gawker published a lot of sex tapes early on. Like that was, so if you want to sort of take that philosophy to its logical conclusion, you're publishing. And this is one of these things where it's hard to imagine that recently this was considered sort of okay. But they would like publish, you know, celebrity sex tapes when Brett Favre was texting images that he should, you know, dick pics to women. They published those. And, you know, famously, they published a, a sex tape involving Hulk Hogan right. that he did not want published that ultimately got them, you know, w- with help of their other enemies sued out of existence. So you you make the move, you know, you're there for the rise of, of Politico, which, you know, to take people back to Washington and again, the mid aughts, late aughts, uh, what Politico was doing was just writing politics in a more interesting way in a more relevant way, in a more up-to-date way. What were the lessons you learned from Politico? Because you you then uh, come over and join BuzzFeed. I was at Politico blogging, and I now, I mean, I didn't then probably know the word social media, but I now see blogging as this sort of, you know, elemental form of social media, basically turned into social media. The bloggers were all talking to each other and talking to their commenters in fairly clunky ways. And, and I was, you know, covering the 2008 presidential campaign there and People like you were like hitting refresh on my blog and that was so cool and emailing me and it felt like we just felt so connected to the story and the journalism was very, very satisfying. And as time went on, as you get into the big healthcare fights of 2010, 2011, you could just feel that all that energy and you could see it in the traffic, that all that energy that was being spent, that had been going into these blogs had moved over to Twitter. And as a journalist, like what I wanted was to break news and watch people on Twitter share it because that was sort of validation that I had a scoop and all my sources, all the people I was writing about were over on Twitter. And so when Jonah Peretti approached me and said, hey, like I have this different idea of how the internet is going to work, where people go to Twitter, not to your website, or they go to Facebook, not to your website. And the challenge for a journalist is how do you get your stuff in there? Mm. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's like, that's my life. That was how I was already thinking. So you get to BuzzFeed and some of BuzzFeed's success um, is strategic, and some of it is just totally happenstance. Uh, the listicles. Explain kind of the explosion of BuzzFeed, especially um, around the rise of the, you know, and I think many people remember, you know, these BuzzFeed listicles. You clicked on them, you saw them on Facebook 10, 12 years ago. You know, what state should I live in? What royal figure yeah. am I? What Disney princess am I? Um, where does that come about, and, 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 and how does that surpass even the initial expectations internally there? Well, I think BuzzFeed had spent a lot of time while Facebook was still small, thinking about like, what would people share? And people share things. And I, you know, I remember it's like people would copy, right, lists sound pretty basic. Um, But in fact, they, you know, like, like, I remember when people started to copy us, National Geographic did a quiz that was like 10 monkeys. And it was like, ah, that's so basic. It's got to be like 10 monkeys who are disappointed in you. Um, (laughs) But in fact, I think the folks at BuzzFeed who made content that sometimes felt dumb, but were in fact very smart and looking at data a lot and thinking a lot about like human psychology, were thinking like, what's something you would send to your friend? Like you might send them the list of monkeys who are disappointed in you if you were like trying to make some joke about being disappointed. If you, a lot, some of it was about identity. Like if you, you know, had a colleague who grew up Persian in New Jersey and did a list of things that only people who grew up Persian in New Jersey know, and every, every you know, maybe only a few hundred thousand people, but they all looked at it and shared it and shared it with their friends. And so there were these ways of thinking about, well, why would somebody share this thing? 
that were very basic to how BuzzFeed worked. And as Facebook exploded, BuzzFeed was had already been thinking the way Facebook was thinking, essentially. And Jonah had this very direct relationship to Mark Zuckerberg, where they were talking about it all the time, too. And so I think we, we're in some ways, we're sort of mirroring where Facebook was headed. Yeah, so Facebook's making this evolution at the same time as you see these digital media startups. And of course, Jonah and others are recognizing that Facebook um, is the platform that you know you can build yourself off of for explosive growth. You mentioned this meeting Mark Zuckerberg has with Twitter, um, where you know he wants to buy Twitter very early on in 2008. Yeah. Um, and Twitter says no. And what that effectively means for Facebook's strategy going forward, the impact that that decision uh, had on, I mean, frankly, <laughs> our politics, our nation, yeah. social media, talk about that. No, I think you're totally right to notice that moment which in the book, which is basically Twitter is small, but Twitter is growing. And Zuckerberg, who's incredibly competitive and always looking around for competitors, sees like, well, like if you extend that line upward, it's gonna pass Facebook at some point. Um, and what is Twitter doing? Twitter's doing live news and he, you know, he, he's, talking to the Twitter people and at some point is just like, we're going to crush them and we're going to crush them by doing the same thing they do. And Facebook just jumps with both feet into the news business. And suddenly publishers, BuzzFeed first of all, are just like drowning in traffic and tons of people are looking at us and we're spreading like wild on Facebook. And I think Facebook didn't really think it through and didn't think about, huh, like news, that's like a pretty complicated space and truth and falsity matter a lot. And sometimes people get upset and sometimes, you know, political leaders and regulators get upset and we're moving from being this safe, nice place where you talk to your friends to being this central global public square with all that that entails. And Twitter, in its kind of bumbling way, wanted to be that and knew it was that and attempted sometimes better, sometimes worse to act responsibly because that's really at its core, it was trying to be this big global public square. Facebook sort of bumbled into it with all these metrics around engagement that were really basically built for a much more, a different kind of a product. And I think never totally got its arms around what it meant to be the central center of like high stakes politics and policy. And eventually I think has tried just to kind of quietly back away, essentially. Yeah, there's been a, I, I don't know how explicit of an admission, but at least a tacit admission at Facebook that newsfeed uh, and what they did with it, especially as it led up to the 2016 election, uh, is something that they don't repeat and something they're trying to avoid. And it's interesting, you know, as we think about the evolution of these platforms is, you, you know, you talk in the book also about, you know, kind of those initial biographies of Facebook, you know, these kind of inspirational uh, these people trying to change things. And that was the larger spin around these tech companies, the Googles, the Facebook. I mean, I remember Twitter around the Arab Spring in 2010, yeah. 2011, you know, like it's helping to bring down authoritarian leaders. And, that wasn't fake. Yeah. I mean, that happened. Right. It totally happened. Uh, and they had this very positive effect. And then things turned over the course of the past decade. And one of the really, to me, like one of the most interesting things about going back was sort of looking for the places where you saw that first. And to me, actually, the place, sort of to my surprise, that it was like, oh, this is what's going to happen, was this site called Jezebel, which is this women's blog that perhaps you and I were not reading in 2007, but was like this kind of revolutionary thing that, came, that was this rebellion against these glossy magazines. The first thing they did was they offered a $10,000 reward for somebody who could find unphotoshopped pictures of a celebrity. It was before everybody was mad about Photoshop. Yeah. 
and what it was doing to sort of women's body images. And somebody did, in fact, show up at their office with a um, leaked photo of Faith Hill before she had been retouched. And they got all this mileage out of it. And they put all this pressure on the sort of kind of beauty industry to like reflect women in a more real way. They pressured them to show more black models. They wrote about life and sex in a way that was just much closer to reality in, in all the ways that the internet can be really kind of positive, empowering, break down all these walls. But also, as they're doing this, they're developing this unbelievably intense, strange relationship with their commenters, with their audience. When they, when the writers step out of line a little, they're under intense assault from their own readers. They felt all this kind of crazy pressure that didn't come with being an old media where you just wrote an article, but came with this strange, new, intense relationship with your audience. They really kind of within a year kind of emulate, you know, burn out mm. and it stopped being able to work that way. And it's sort of, and it, when I was writing about it and talking to those women, it's like, wow, this is what it was like to be a journalist on Twitter, like 10 years later. And there was this intensity of the relationship with the audience, which on one hand can create real interesting, positive effects. And at the other, like, it's pretty hard to survive. That's interesting because it takes me to where I wanted to go next. You talk about the tail wagging the dog when it comes to the audience and journalists. And you write about how the internet changed journalism, that for years, journalists, you know, we, we, we had orders from our executive producers or editors on what to write, you wrote what was assigned, you followed the story, and then things change with the internet. Traffic, you know, literally the title of your book. The audience is now dictating what you were writing. Yeah, and of course, your executive producer, if he was good, as you were... <laughs> <laughs> was was had a pretty good instinct for what people wanted, right? right? It's not like you were you were sitting around saying like, what is the most boring thing we can produce? But in some sense, you were flying without instruments or with pretty bad instruments. You, you didn't have, I mean, in television, we had, you know, ratings data that we would get back very in very basic terms. Ru very rudimentary instruments. Right, and in print, you had circulation and subscriptions, right? Yeah, and you had sort of instincts often wrong about what people wanted, or you had calls or letters. But suddenly with, with the rise of traffic and that you were, it's like you were suddenly flying with navigating with instruments and you could see it incredibly clearly exactly who, where, when was reading which story. And you know, at its best, that could mean that, wow, there are these like un people who just aren't being covered and heard from. And when you write about the whole, this whole, you know, young people say, when you write about them, turns out there are a lot of them and they, they want to read your publication. But at its worst, it would, you could just get into this feedback loop of essentially, wow, people feel this way. We're just going to feed it right back to them. People love Donald Trump. Let's just give them more and more and more and more Donald Trump. Well, we just instance. saw an example of that with this, you know, what we saw coming out of the Dominion lawsuit, right? The yeah. internal memos at Fox News about them basically allowing the audience's feelings to dictate their coverage even when that went against what was actually happening. Yeah, and again, these are old temptations in media. I mean, these aren't these aren't the you know the the you know the first great American newspaper, the New York Sun, really broke through in the I think eighteen fifties with um, uh, this legendary set of stories claiming they had discovered winged people on the moon, right? Um, because that sold papers. Fake news, one hundred and seventy years ago. Yeah, these these are these are old kind of old temptations in media, but the sort of new data made them incredibly easy to execute. I mean, where are you right now um, on, you know, having this incredible amount of data, uh, being able to be so responsive to the audience? How do you navigate that? And what are some of the lessons learned um, as you wrote this book? 
You know, I think it's it's tempting. I think particularly right now, as this whole era is winding to a close, and a lot of people are like, "Man, what happened? That was terrible." Like, I don't know what just happened, but thank God it's over, right? Like, there's sort of I think to sort of forget how many problems the media and the media environment of the sort of Iraq period had. Like, our big institutions we worked for had done a horrible job. Let's go back there for those who might not be familiar. Yeah, like you were, you were, you know, there were a couple of broad, there were a few, few TV channels, a couple of newspapers. And specifically in that case, they were all basically amplified the notion that Saddam Hussein was this major threat to the US who possessed weapons of mass destruction. And there were outsidery voices in the Arab world and in the US saying like, no, no, it's not true. This is nonsense. And nobody listened to them. And there was no real way to get them to, to project into the conversation. And that was a huge problem. We were getting the talking points. I mean, I remember this. I came after the war started. I mean, this spring marks 20 years since the invasion. But in the lead up, you know, you have Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and Don Rumsfeld. Uh, and then they're purposefully leaking you know, intelligence reports that are reinforcing their narrative to the New York Times and the Washington Post. And basically, all major legacy media institutions. I remember this. I was the campus editor at GW, Ben, and uh, looked back a few years ago and realized that, you know, it's not common for uh, college campus editors. Uh, our staff editorial page was endorsing the war in Iraq. We're college students. Yeah, and it was like the power of these big mainstream voices just to dominate what everybody thought and had been a huge catastrophe. And so I think more than the media, I think even really realized that or realizes now. And so there was this incredible hunger for these new outside voices that challenged and opened up the media. So I'm a little reluctant to say, oh, well, that was bad. I think now we're in this very different moment where people feel totally overwhelmed by the amount of incoming, like it's toxic, like they're being manipulated by algorithms and that they want, you know, the, and the, the pendulum has swung and they want someone who can help put these pieces back together, who can give them something that they can trust. But I think there is still an expectation that I think still a lot of legacy media does not particularly deliver that you're going to be transparent in a way that did come with the internet. I mean, listen, we're still seeing it with the, you know, uh, if you try to Monday morning quarterback the COVID coverage of the past few years um, and where the media uh, was effective and where the media failed again. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the, you know, it, it comes, I, I, I was fascinated and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Last week, uh, ABC News did an interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running for president. I imagine you're familiar with this. And they made a point of cutting out uh, his comments about, uh, you know, he's been a critic of vaccines and, you know, has made a whole bunch of uh, allegations in regards to vaccines and autism, you know, and, and many of them have been disproven. But ABC made a point of not even airing them, not even on their website. It wasn't even for time. They wanted to prove a point here. And the feedback I was getting from people is like, I'm an adult, ABC. Like, you're doing an interview, push back on him, show me the facts. But to sit there and and kind of, uh, say that, no, America, we, we're not even going to let that out. Yeah, it's an impulse from another era. Like, think about a moment when there are, you know, two broadcast towers and three newspapers in town, and somebody says something crazy. And you can realize, you know what, like, we shouldn't expose people to that. Like, and I think that's actually a reasonable decision in that case. You have, you really do have the power about like, will people hear about this or not? And sometimes someone's out there telling lies, you can just block it. And I don't know if that's the right decision or the wrong decision. But it's a decision from another era. And I do think now there's when the media 
makes and what's sometimes a reasonable, thoughtful decision to say, hey, this is a crazy thing. Let's not amplify it. We're going to suppress it. They can't actually suppress it. And it winds up just looking like, why are you hiding this from me? It's interesting. I um, was doing a piece recently about... Um, about this, the question of, you know, Twitter also did, you know, was very aggressive about, you know, throwing off the platform people who held really unorthodox and often obviously wrong views about COVID. Right. And, and if you, one of the things that you see in these conversations about Twitter among people like Elon Musk, among the people who used to work at Twitter, is they felt these decisions were incredibly high stakes, life or death. You know, can we stop people from here? If we stop people from hearing this anti-vax propaganda, they will get vaccinated and they will live. If we let it go on the platform, they will die. And I talked to an academic who researches this stuff and researches the outcomes, because, you know, if you do step back, it's not like it worked. It's not like Americans are vaccinated at a particularly high rate. We have one of the lower vaccination rates in the developed right, world. But we were, and we were pretty aggressive about trying to stop this stuff from getting out there. And I do think most of it is crazy. And yet... And I talked to this academic who also, I think, thinks most of this is total toxic craziness that gets people hurt. And I said, on balance, do you think it helped for Twitter to delete all these accounts? And he was like, well, on one hand, people were prevented from getting false information. On the other, they were given the impression that there was this secret truth that was being suppressed. And you balance those things together, and probably a no net impact. And the whole thing was a waste of time. I mean, what a depressing conclusion. But I do think it's that is that is where we live now, and you have to sort of realize that. Yeah, you you end with with um, a very good quote. Hold on, I want to pull it up here about gasoline. Wow, are we going to talk about fossil fuels, Mush? <laughs> I mean, we could, Ben. We could talk about whatever you want, um, <laughs> but I think you're using it as a metaphor here. Gasoline can create useful energy, but it can also simply burn. And by 2023, it seemed clear that the power of this new social energy had been to destroy any institution from the media to the political establishment that it touched. Those of us who work in media, politics, and technology are largely now concerned with figuring out how to hold these failing institutions together or to build new ones that are resistant to the forces we helped unleash. I did write that. You were part, you did write that. So these organizations were all about tearing things down. And now that we've torn things down, and by the way, some of these institutions need reform. You know, it's interesting, you know, if you look at the past 20 years, whether it was coming out of Iraq, the CIA, uh, actually coming out of 9-11, right? The intelligence community. And coming out of Iraq, more intelligence community. And then you sort of had Katrina. And then you, you know, over the course of the years, whether it's questions about the FBI or more recently the CDC and the FDA, et cetera. Um, and those are just those governmental institutions. Then you have media yeah. institutions. And, you know, we're all part as journalists of, you know, asking questions and drilling into things and calling people to account. But it struck me that you were saying those of us are now trying to figure out how to hold these failing institutions together. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there is a, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I was maybe just speaking for myself, like it does turn out that having trusted, shared facts sure would be nice for our society. I mean, functioning political parties. Like, I think you sort of look across society and what social media, in, in, in the wake of this moment, which isn't just social media, right? Like there was this wave of anger at globalization. There's a lot of different things going on, but we do not have terribly well-functioning institutions. And, and I think a lot of people would like to have, you know, Amtrak and the Congress work better. Like, I don't think that's all that controversial. I mean, but it's tricky in media because one of the other things is 
our institutions always kind of sucked. Like if you were in a newsroom in the year 1997, it was a disaster and people were getting things wrong all the time and trying to fix it and doing their best, but it's messy. But then you get to 2007 and that's all happening in public Mm. and everybody can see what idiots you are. And the sort of errors that went unnoticed before are now amplified. And I think there is something about this, and this is true like of the CDC too, right? Like the kind of blunt force, misleading messaging that was intended to sort of get a good outcome, even though maybe the things they were saying weren't exactly true. Maybe there was an era when that worked or made sense, but they were doing it long past that era. And so how you rebuild that kind of trust with an audience who really can see you as you are with all your limitations, rather than trying to project this kind of absolute authority that I think both the government and the media used to be able to get away with. I think it's really challenging. Like, I don't think there's some easy answer. Right. I mean, with uh, Humpty Dumpty is broken into all the pieces. And how do we put it back to, you know, how do we put them back together again? The audience is all bifurcated, right? Like, and, and you can even see this, you see this with the, you know, the, the audience that goes to various conservative media outlets, the ones that are, you know, reading the Epoch Times online, the ones that are, um, you know, subscribed to your newsletter, the ones that are following me on Instagram. I mean, the audience is all over the place. And, and not about to reassemble into one giant space. How do we get back to shared truth again? I mean, it seems like, yeah. and, and how much do we blame Mark Zuckerberg for this? So I think some, I mean, I think there were sort of product decisions at Facebook that made things worse at times, but I think there were also, you know, these big forces at work and it's, and you, it's hard to sort of pinpoint a single cause for these huge social trends. I mean, I guess my own view and like what we're trying to do with Semaphore is not to try to reestablish a kind of like, this is the authoritative version of the truth and we're going to explain everything to you and we know everything, but to try to be more transparent and humble in the way we structure our stories. It's called semiform. It's like, here's the facts. And I, but if it's, I'm writing about media. I know a lot about media. So like, here's a scoop I got. For instance, we reported that Rupert Murdoch had a call with Zelensky. Pretty interesting. What does that mean for Tucker Carlson's firing? Like, I can give you my informed speculation. But I'm going to tell you that's my informed speculation. I'm also going to include somebody else's voice who really disagrees with me. And tens of thousands of people out there will, uh, you know, develop their own conspiracies based on that phone call, right? Yeah, but I think people trust you more when you say, hey, I don't have an absolute monopoly on truth and I'm open to disagreement, open to the possibility, not that the facts will be wrong, the facts better be right, but open to the possibility that my interpretation is wrong and open to other views. I think that's actually it's a little counterintuitive because I think the old way to to build trust is to be like, listen only to me, I have a monopoly on truth. But I think we have found that people trust us more when we are, you know, when we're more open to diverse views. So we head into another presidential campaign cycle. Ben, you've covered several of them. What are the lessons the media should take going into this cycle? You know, and, you know, especially given the scenario here where we could, I mean, right now he's the leading candidate for the Republican primary, Donald Trump. Yeah. So this is, this is a favorite hobby horse of mine because I've covered a lot of presidential campaigns. And the thing the media does every campaign is that at the end of the campaign, they have like a study sometimes at Harvard. It's usually the Harvard. Yeah. Harvard usually does the study. Yeah. Yeah. And they look at all the mistakes, the terrible mistakes they made in the last campaign. And then they just go charging into the next one, like ready to fight the last war and get it right. And they screw something. And and whatever the issue is, it's something different. So like I, my perception right now is that the collective media decided that the reason Donald Trump became president was because they gave him too much attention. And it is certainly true that there was a period, particularly on CNN in 2015, when they were giving him kind of unfiltered platform to say things that weren't true and to not challenge things. And that was not 
appropriate, not good journalism. Wait, let me chime in on that. So as someone who worked in network and cable news in that era, one of the reasons they did this is because live uh, events drive viewership and especially live events that are unpredictable. And they're cheap to produce. They're the easiest you thing just ever. Pick up the live stream. You just put up a live stream. Yeah, Trump was providing free entertaining content and it was driving great traffic. Yeah. So yeah, all sorts of reasons they did it. But in any case, that's a big lesson people have learned. And so something people, reporters are not doing a lot of, and my colleague Dave Weigel does a lot of this, sometimes gets criticized, is listening to what Donald Trump is saying when he gives speeches and saying and reporting like, wow, he's really escalating his attacks on trans people. Like that is a big trend that is happening on the right. And when we write about this, sometimes people say like, how could you amplify it? But I don't think that's what we're doing. Like, I think we're informing people and analyzing it. And that this sort of, le- the, in the, the media has a bit overlearned the lesson of, of the first Trump election and thinks that kind of if you ignore people that you think are assholes, they will go away. And I don't think that's really how the world works or journalism's job. But I think, so I don't know. I mean, that's the thing I'm seeing right now is that I think the mistake the media is making right now is ignoring what's actually happening. And what do you make of the media's coverage? And I, and by the way, I hate using the term the media because you and I both The know. media, right. Lots of, we're all, each I of mean, us is, like, uh, but, are idiots in our own special way. But yeah. in general, the coverage of the Biden administration and President Biden, our oldest president, uh, obviously, the New York Times has spent a lot of time drilling into it. I think they have a story out in the past day about uh, talking to doctors about the brain of an 80-year-old and an 86-year-old and, yeah. and what it means. Um, how has the media done in its coverage of President Biden, especially after four years of Trump? I mean, I think you know Biden has gotten basically pretty sympathetic coverage. I think on the you know, on the big economic issues, I think the reporters sort of bought the administration's line on inflation in a way that didn't actually help the administration in a way, gave them covered and not worry about it for too long. And in general, you know, I think that you're getting what is basically pretty typical coverage of a presidential administration where you get have a, you know, White House press corps that more or less follows the line that they're hearing from the White House and reports what the president is doing. And I, I and it's just some of it is, I mean, Trump was so totally different in that he was you know, trying to do unconstitutional stuff and shattering norms and then tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And in contrast to that, Biden looks pretty normal and has not done anything like that and is benefiting from it. I'm not sure that's that interesting. Though at the same time, you know, what I hear, you know, from some people is like, well, where was that edge that you brought? You know, if you're going to fact check everything the president does, where is that edge when it comes to Democratic presidents? There are two things. I think there are two things going on. I mean, oh, a like the last. We were just talking, funny mission about the last Republican president, George W. Bush. People may remember him, who was able to pr- use the mainstream media to totally dominate the conversation about the most important policy choice in recent American history, the Iraq War. So I'm not sure it's really historically true that the media is totally deaf to the perspective of Republican presidents. I don't think that's really holds up. And then I think Trump was different from other presidents, including Bush, in terms of how far he strayed from American norms. Like, I don't think that's all that controversial either. Also, our our sort of individual journalists tend to be Democrats. Yeah. And do Democrats sometimes get an easy ride? Sure. But the presidency has a lot of power to shape the narrative regardless. And I think if you look at the Bush administration, which was the Republican president before Trump, I don't think you'd say that the, me- that the big media was didn't help them with their biggest priority. And it gets me the final thing here. And you talk about, um, interestingly, the origins of Drudge Report uh, and sort of the 
the relationship between the media and our politics. I mean, I remember my days at Fox News, literally, uh, I was working with Britt Hume, who would anchor the show at 6 p.m. every night. And Ben, he would refresh Drudge Report like several times an hour. And based on what was happening on Drudge, change the makeup of the show every night. Right, before Twitter programmed television, Drudge programmed television. At least certain certain networks um, and yeah. certain shows. And the impact that had, you know, Drudge rises with the Monica Lewinsky scandal uh, and the Clinton impeachment and then sort of dominates uh, the rest of the media. I wanted you to talk a bit about the relationship between our politics and our media. You know, you have the rise of Obama, you have the rise of the Tea Party, and sort of the parallel tracks there or the relationship they're in. Yeah, I mean, I think I think digital media is sort of totally intertwined with politics. And, you know, when I was starting out, there was a presumption that this was a progressive young person's medium. And obviously, in, the, in retrospect, that's because the people who were online first were college kids. And, but there really was, I mean, Huffington Post was founded very explicitly as a left-wing answer to the Drudge Report to get a Democrat elected in 2008. That was kind of the goal, among other goals, the goal. And not just a Democrat, but Barack Obama was the person for, for different reasons they liked. That was their goal at Huffington Post was we're going to get Obama elected president. Yeah, let's get Obama elected. And they did. And it felt, I mean, they helped. Well, they really how did. much credit do you give them? Uh, who knows? I think, you know, any historical event, there, I, I think that's sort of a tough question, yeah. but they helped. And in fact, like, you know, one of the, Facebook, there was a pers- wide perception that Facebook was this progressive, youthful force. And Obama visited Facebook, you know, and it totally made sense that Obama would visit Facebook. Like it went without saying that they were kind of a Democratic Party institution. And then everybody, you know, but it was probably just because lots of older people were not yet on the internet. And when they got on the internet, it changed and Facebook in particular became an older, more conservative person's place. And the kind of politics and the anger that Donald Trump channeled a confrontation played incredibly well through Facebook's algorithms. And and I think a lot of people who had thought, wow, the election of Barack Obama in 2008 represents like the culmination of the power of this new digital age, kind of then sat back and watched as, you know, people also, Steve Bannon, Andrew Breitbart, who'd been kind of marginal. They've been around in that first internet era, but marginal. It's suddenly it's like, oh, wait, no, they're, they're the main characters. They're the ones driving the story and the real culmination of this digital media world is the election of Donald Trump. So when the 20-somethings are on Facebook in 2008, they helped get Obama elected. Eight years later, they're- 20-somethings. They were 20-something is old. They were like, you know, 18-somethings. 18-somethings. And then a little less than eight years later, their parents and grandparents are now on Facebook and Trump gets elected using the platform. Yeah, that's right. So where are we now in 2023 as far as the relationship between uh, online media and our politics? Where is sort of, uh, Democratic Party and the Republican Party, because I, you know, you'll often hear, you'll see these stories like Democrats worried Republicans have a stranglehold on whatever, and then vice versa. Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I think the the sort of world is splintering the digital world. I mean, you know, the notion that I mean, Facebook was this global space where you could, where a single piece of content could be seen by everybody in the world in a few hours. Twitter was the kind of global public square where every political and policy figure and journalist were screaming at the top of their lungs at all times. And they're both kind of unraveling. And not that they'll go away per se, but they've lost their cultural force and are continuing to. And where are people? They're lots of different places. They're watching you. Their podcasts are a great example of something that's just a much narrower, more contained space. The biggest podcast in the country, Joe Rogan's show, we wrote about this in our media newsletter this week, has 5% of the market. And everybody else has less. The, hold on. So I just want to repeat that. The biggest podcast in America 
has 5% of the market, that's Joe Rogan. Yeah, that's right. Or 5%, I don't know how you measure it, but 5% of people who say they have a favorite podcast name Rogan. So it's actually probably less. Mm. And that's amazing. That's huge. But it's not the kind of massive cultural influence that a centralized thing like Facebook or Twitter has. And so what I think you're seeing is a kind of splintering of people's habits and interests into, you know, even like the New York Times is big and is trying to get to, I think, 10 million subscribers, including cooking and crosswords and all that. But there's a country of more than 300 million people. And I think that you're not going to see a single dominant space anymore. And that maybe that's healthier. Right. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Where I mean, because that's the question I'll always get from people. You know, it's certainly a reaction against. I think the answer to that is almost always it's what people want. It's a reaction against the last thing. But they like the last thing for a while. I mean, I think it's, you know, the pendulum swings. And this is a question I get from a lot of people. And I want to pose it to you as a journalist that um, I trust and people should trust. Where do you find reliable information, Ben? Where should people turn to? Uh, besides, I see a semaphore backdrop behind you, but besides your publication and, and the newsletters that you Sorry, put out. only my publication and, you, and your and your. That's Instagram it, that's channel. it. There's the only that's two it. places left. You're screwed. And all of media, everybody. No. Wait, yeah, wait, where do you turn to? Um, what's, what's your media diet and what should be the media diet for the average person? So I would say, I mean, I was a very Twitter-centric news consumer and felt like I really, it was this platform where ever, all these journalists who I knew were putting stuff out and I could gauge it. And it sort of stopped working for me technically. Like, it's hard to go there now and say, what's happening? And be told that. I know, it's um, very frustrating It's now. just chaotic. You can find what's happening on Twitter, which is also interesting. What like, do they the, do? They broke the algorithm? Politics. What did Elon do? What do you think? I think they're trying to make it good. I don't know. It's complicated. <sighs> I, don't, okay. I don't really know. But it's I mean, not I'm really still on it. Me. So I think there's this, I mean, one sort of amazing thing is that I do find myself occasionally going to the Drudge Report to say what's happening, because it's still there, still doing that job. I listen to podcasts, but I think, you know, I read every, you know, I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post, but I don't weigh every byline equally. You know, I do care who is writing it. But you can do that because you know the players. Yeah, I know. But I think, I do think news consumers increasingly are not wrongly looking for individuals rather than kind of faceless brands that they can trust. And it's something that places like the Times and the Post that are full of brilliant journalists, but also idiots like any other big institution, like have to reckon with is how do they promote the identities of individuals that their reader, you know, I want if I have Maggie Haberman wrote something about Donald Trump, like that's something I want to read. But if, you know, the nice kid who's working the Saturday morning shift aggregated something about Donald Trump, I might not. And how does an institution that is used to being this kind of big factory where everyone's a cog in the machine, move into a space where people have clearer voices and identities. And the Times doing an okay job at that, actually, among these publications. I think it's really hard. So you've lived this role for 20 years. What was the most surprising thing you take away from writing the book? For me, the most surprising thing was how much the people who sort of helped create this right-wing populism that gave us Donald Trump really were there from the start. Like the kind of progressive, mostly younger people who built the internet didn't really see it. But for instance, the founder of 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's office for a while. Andrew Breitbart was a co-founder of Huffington Post. Steve Bannon sort of learned a lot of lessons and came by and visited. And other, you know, one of and at BuzzFeed, there's a guy who I think is currently, I'm not sure if he's in jail, but he's been convicted of the Capitol riots, who worked at BuzzFeed and was a video producer and, and social media guy. Did you guy hire him, Ben? I did not. Okay. I didn't, didn't hire him. But there was another guy I did hire, Benny Johnson, who's now a leading voice of that of that world. And I think how close those two things were is something that surprised me. Ben Smith, new book, uh, Traffic. Good read. You know, it's so interesting um, how quickly old you feel when you read that book, Ben, because I'm like, wait, there's yeah, history no of kidding. the 
you're writing a history of something that happened in 2010, 2014, 2016. Yes, that was the goal was to make you feel old, Mush. Listen, Ben, well, mission accomplished, my friend. Um, good luck with the book. Appreciate talking to you as always, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, as we conclude here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcast episodes like this one and to support more of this type of content, these types of interviews, as well as access to our private Mo News Instagram account. For deep dives and everything behind the scenes, it is a way to support what we're doing here at Mo News and support independent journalism as well. You can check that all out at mo.news slash premium. Again, that is mo.news slash premium. You can get access for as little as $7 a month to try it out. Or the annual package gives you two free months at $70 a year. There's also a lifetime founders subscription. Check that all out again over at mo.news slash premium. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode and I'll see everyone soon.